Greetings and welcome to episode number four of Earth Repair Radio. We have never, so far in human history, used genetic engineering for a purely humanitarian ecological purposes. So we formed this group because there was no law to safeguard, you know, cross-pollination. I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we've got a great show for you. We've got an interview with Don Tipping. Don has a seed company, Siskiyou Seeds, and is a seed farmer down in southern Oregon and has one of the most amazing permaculture farms I've ever been to in my travels. And Don's a friend of mine and just has a great wealth of knowledge about seed breeding, about genetically modified organisms, and about life. So listen up and enjoy the interview. Hey, good morning, Don. All right. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing very well. Good. Sun's out here. Yeah. The sun is out in Oregon, finally, after a long and very, very wet winter. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated knowing you for the last probably about eight years and seeing your farm um, in its in all of its glory. And so we'll just we'll just get right into it. Um, what are you up to these days that's really exciting to you? Well, uh, I guess just to keep it current, uh, I'm working on some plant breeding projects and, and that's really uh, intriguing to me, just feeling like I have my hands on the dials of helping adapt food crops to our climate and um, and getting to exercise creativity and imagination within that. So that, that, that's uh, probably one of my favorite things I'm doing mm-hmm. these days. Nice. You specialize in growing bioregionally adapted seeds at Seven Seeds Farms and with Siskiyou Seeds, your, your uh, seed company. What led you to focusing on seed breeding and production as the main output of your farm and really the main one of the main focuses of your life? Well, it wasn't something that I said about with intention necessarily. Uh, although, you know, as is many things in life, I can look back and see the way there were seemingly unrelated events at the time that culminated in the work that I'm doing now. And I guess part of that goes back to in the early 90s, I had the opportunity to study with Harald Hoven at the Rudolf Steiner College in Fair Oaks, California, Mm -hmm. during a time I was running a small CSA farm at a Waldorf school in in Davis, where I'd been going to school. And Harald was trained in biodynamics in the Black Forest in Germany and really saw working with seeds and saving seeds as a way for a farm or a garden to express its own unique individuality between the, you know, the micro adjustments of the relationship between soil and the climate and the the genetics of a plant. And, you know, and that was something that was new to me and, and it's similar in many ways to the way, you know, livestock kind of fine tune with the landscape and the environment and then their fertility is naturally balanced to what the land needs. So it sort of planted the seed in my mind of that there's there's a lot more than meets the eye because back then nobody was using organic seed. Uh, most of the organic farms I was working on, we were just using seed from Johnny's or one of the other, you know, conventional seed houses uh, sometimes you come across fungicide treated seed and the that whole movement was really in its infancy and then when i moved to oregon in 1996 moving to williams i wasn't really aware of it at the time but there were many other organic farmers in the area that were growing seed for seeds of change at the time was a independent uh, company uh, really based in new mexico but many of the the original founders of Seeds of Change had lived in Williams in the early 80s and late 70s. So there was a whole wealth of seed knowledge and economic opportunity here. So like many young farmers, I just tried to grow everything. Mm-hmm. The first season I was here, we did restaurants and farmers markets and we grew medicinal herbs for the herb farm and Pacific Botanicals and we 
were lucky to get a couple seed contracts with Seeds of Change. I remember them clearly. It was Market Pride Chinese Cabbage, which is like a Napa cabbage style, uh, Brassica Rapa, and also Lemon Cucumber. And, you know, that was totally new territory for me instead of, you know, harvesting a vegetable at its prime and washing it and bunching it and selling it. You let it go its whole life cycle and and then take it through the seed cleaning and extraction process. And that I've discovered over the, you know, in the late 90s there that it really worked out well for where we live because we don't really have a major population base here in southern Oregon. Uh, if you look at between Redding and Roseburg, which really roughly defines what the Klamath-Siskiyou bioregion is, I think there's less than a quarter million people. Hmm. Whereas, you know, if you're outside the Bay Area, there's 10 to 15 million people in that area. Right. Or you look at between Eugene and Portland, and there's there's a much more sizable population. So growing produce, there's only so many people eating. When you think of that quarter million, only a certain percentage is interested in organic and Quite a few of them are growing their own food, actually, because there's a strong homesteading ethos, uh, even among the old timers around here. So by growing seed, it's a way to capitalize on our and really specialize in our unique climate that we have these warm, dry summers, which are ideal for the dry seeded seed crop. So and that and this is kind of. You know, highlight something that I've been realizing more and more is I watch my own experience farming and I watch that of others or people that are trying to start a relationship with agriculture. We have these ideas of what we want to grow, what we're interested in, but ultimately the climate and the land dictates what type of vegetation thrives there. And we look at, you know, the natural ecology, the, the plants in an area are completely defined by this. So if we really want to be doing you know, I'll just say natural farming or permaculture for that matter. Likewise, the crops and the focus of the crop, you know, whether it's for produce or seed or medicine, are going to be influenced by our climate and in the soils of that area. Yeah. I've, uh, I've heard you referred to as a seed wizard. And uh, I've also heard you talk about how you mentioned this a little bit, how, you know, the essence of, of your farm and your soils, you know, becomes contained in that seed that you end up passing on to other gardeners and both in your bioregion and other places. Um, are there, would you, would you go into that a little bit more about like, like the, the, how you feel like you are really touching people when you are, um, sending seed into their gardens? Well, yeah, that's, um, you know, seed, as I think about it more and more, it's really one of the the defining aspects of civilization, that until we were saving seed, we weren't really, um, you know, civilized people. And I would extend saving seed to, uh, you know, indigenous land use practices where they'd be harvesting acorns and tarweed seed and, um, you know, Sagittaria and, and things of this nature. But, and when I think of working with biodynamics and, you know, and one of the key understandings of the biodynamic approach is that unless humans receive adequate nutrition, then we're not capable of having, you know, more spiritualized, more compassionate, kind thoughts that helps other humanity and other other beings. So... When we work with produce, you know, my farm, let's say we're cultivating about seven acres of annuals right now currently, that can only grow food for maybe 50 to 100 people So, uh, in terms of the produce, mm-hmm. whereas on seven acres of seed, that is going over a much larger area. You know, seven acres of seed, we're, I, I can't even imagine, but I know we fill about 80,000 seed packets a year, so wow. um, we're able to have a bigger influence, and then one thing I like, too, is, in a way, I'm not quite sure what the positive version of the word subversive is, uh, perhaps inspirational, <laughs> um, by, you know, having the seeds in a vehicle to articulate the work we're doing or showcase the work that other seed growers I know are doing. We are helping, you know, kind of write a new story. And 
I, I really like that part um, a lot because I look at a lot of times in my life, my relationship with activism is we are actually being reactivists. We're reacting to something that's happening that we don't like. And to me, the whole permaculture movement very much is about doing the right thing instead of trying to stop the wrong thing. Hmm. So in working with seeds, not only are we giving people one of the important ingredients in order to have a garden, but we're also facilitating a relationship with what I think for many people is uh, a very therapeutic activity mm-hmm. uh, where they're taking control of their own life and you know getting outside, hopefully with their family or friends or both, and um, you know taking initiative in their life. And I was uh, remarking a few years ago, I have a couple seed racks in uh, natural food stores, and I, uh, <laughs> I was looking at it and thinking, this is so funny. This, this company allows me to make my own display racks, bring them in, um, sell seeds here so that people don't need to buy the food that they sell, <laughs> and then they pay me for it. Right. And if they really knew what was going on, they probably, like, it's kind of counter to their whole business model, which yeah. is they want people to buy food. So here they're enabling me to make, you know, considerable amount of money um, helping people grow food. So, you know, I, I wouldn't personally use the term seed wizard i i save words like wizard for the likes of uh, dumbledore and, <laughs> but um they might be referring to your to your uh carrot size or you know brassica yeah. varieties or something like that yeah yeah so yeah. and i think too yeah i have a bit of a penchant for the unusual so um you know the, the last year one of my favorite things i was working on was uh working with a bunch of succulents in the Euphorbaceae uh, genus. And, um, you know, so I tend to, my favorite plants are usually the ones that are most, the most unusual uh, rather than the normal ones. Right. Yeah. And then do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened in Josephine County with uh, the ban on the genetically modified seed use and um, how how your seed community fits into that, and you just talk a little yeah, bit about sure. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it, it's interesting how some of that came about. Like we formed this organization called the Southern Oregon Seed Growers Association to try and address some of the conflicts that were occurring because Syngenta, which is a Swiss biotech and chemical company, was growing. Um, by their disclosure, over 36 isolated plots around Jackson and Josephine County, the two counties that really comprise the Rogue Valley of uh, GMO sugar beets. They were developing their Roundup Ready, uh, you know, herbicide tolerant sugar beets and growing the parent lines for the later hybrids that they would grow up in the Willamette Valley for larger seed production. So we formed this group because there was no law to safeguard you know, cross pollination and uh, sugar beets are the the Latin name is beta vulgaris, which is the same species as Swiss chard and table beets, mm. and it's a wind pollinated crop. And the pollen can travel long distances under ideal circumstances; it can go as much as ten miles. So, it really threatened, you know, some of for our farm and our seed company, our economic interests and those of other organic seed growers, because if we had a contamination event something that has a reasonably high value certified organic vegetable seed plummets to basically zero because Mm -hmm. the national organic program doesn't allow for that. So, you know, Syngenta wasn't really willing to work with us. We had some meetings and tried to work it out with the OSU extension here. And it it was interesting because it ultimately culminated in them sending their state government relations specialist from Washington, D.C. to meet with us who was basically a paid lobbyist PR person. Um, And she kind of made this publicity stunt of standing up in the middle of one of our meetings where we'd gotten about 50 farmers, organic farmers, to meet in the the afternoon on a work day, which is, you know, nothing short (laughs) of miraculous. (laughs) So she stood up in the middle of it and said, you people are unreasonable. We cannot, you know, do anything with you. Goodbye. And (laughs) stormed out of the, the room. So... 
we were left really no choice but to pursue uh, a legislative uh, angle. So Jackson County initiated first, and that's where Medford and Ashland, Oregon are. And they got the ballot uh, initiative moving to have it on the May 2014 ballot for the county. And then Josephine County uh, followed suit shortly thereafter. So it was on the ballot in both counties, and it wound up passing by a pretty considerable margin. I think it was 60% in Jackson County and 58% in Josephine County. And that's even amidst um, millions of dollars uh, by the biotech industry really kind of uh, veiled behind... Uh, an organization called Oregonians for Food and Shelter, mm. which is a timber and ag chemical lobbying group. Right. So anyhow, they poured millions of dollars into fighting it uh, with all sorts of sob stories about how farmers were going to be kicked off the land and go bankrupt and all this stuff. So anyhow, we won. While all that was going on, uh, there was a attorney that works for the Center for Food Safety. His name is John D. Lorenzo. And he uh, wrote up what we call the preemption bill, uh, Senate Bill 863, and managed to get it attached as a um, rider on an emergency budget bill at the state level that said mm-hmm. that no county could implement agricultural regulations that differed from the Oregon Department of Agriculture. Hmm. Um, so, Jackson County had a very uh, progressive uh, senator who managed to write in an exemption for Jackson County because they got their signatures for the ballot in earlier. Yeah. Whereas in Josephine County, the Oregon Farm Bureau and the Cattlemen's Association stalled the process and asked for recounts of the signatures and things like this. So we were not covered by that um, kind of sweetheart backroom deal. Mm. So... The, after the Jackson County one uh, was successful, the, the biotech group sued. I was an expert witness on that lawsuit, and we were victorious on that, even amidst you know lots of money being thrown at it from Monsanto, Syngenta, Dow, those types of companies. And then Josephine County, they waited until uh, it was a year after the vote it was going to go in effect. They waited till the day before that. And then uh, a couple over in the Illinois Valley sued Josephine County saying that they stood to lose millions of dollars because of this. Hmm. And they'd never actually grown a GMO crop themselves. They'd allowed part of their land to be leased as one of these test plots. Uh And they made $900 a year off of that one acre lease two years in a row. Um, so anyhow, and it was interesting because we did some, you know, searching because we, you, when you're in court, you get to file depositions and see all this stuff. And, you know, for one, they weren't really farmers. She taught at the high school and he just, you know, did construction and stuff and had a fairly long arrest record, in fact, for hmm. um, kind of unruly behavior. And it became clear that they were just the front of a Syngenta-led manufactured lawsuit. And we actually uncovered a $30,000 check from Syngenta five days after the election to them for which there was no paper trail huh. or invoice or anything. And I don't, I've never Whoa. seen a check that big get written for nothing. Right. <laughs> Anyhow, the judge, when we pointed this out, just kind of took a deep sigh and looked away and we realized that he'd probably been paid off too. So now it's you know going to the state level because we appealed. And now there's another bill um, – being introduced it was just last thursday heard for the first time up in salem to allow an exemption similar to jackson county for josephine county so it's all very complicated and we're dealing with major you know global corporate chemical biotech companies so again it's kind of like i mentioned before that notion of reactivity versus proactivity and Myself, I I got involved just because I can be, you know, for us, it's not just an an issue of ideology. It's actually an economic argument uh, in terms of our business model is all hinged upon organic, being certified organic. Right. But nonetheless, I think the, the larger argument around GMOs is that 
they just intend to wear us down. Right. And um, if we really look at it, if we take a broader perspective, we can see that the next round of GMO crops that are being introduced are things like the Arctic Beauty Apple, which was not transgenic. It wasn't um, a cross of a gene from a totally different organism. It was a gene from a wild apple that they spliced into domesticated apple yeah. so that it doesn't brown when you cut it open. And now there's this whole new science called gene editing, and all the new GMOs will be like that. So if we outlaw transgenic... Yeah. Do you want to just define that real quick? Because I'm not sure everybody would know what transgenic means. Yeah. So the, the classic one was one of the first major GMO crops that was released for the public. And it was a flavor saver tomato where they had got a gene from a flounder from a fish wow. and uh, spliced that into a tomato. And it allegedly made it so you could harvest it green and gas it with ethylene and it still had flavor and would, you know, you could pack it in a box and it wouldn't explode. Um, so, you know, clearly a, a situation that would never occur in nature. Yeah. G, you know, tomatoes and fish, it's just impossible. Right. <laughs> and if we look at other places in nature, anytime you cross the species line, like a, a donkey and a horse, the resulting offspring are sterile. Yeah. Nature just says, no, no thanks. You know, maybe it might work occasionally, but it never moves very far. So transgenic is the term used in Europe to describe genetic engineering or uh, genetically modified organisms. So they're coming up with new things because they realize as legal definitions get drawn up uh, that they need to adapt and change their techniques or their business model becomes obsolete. So, um, you know, it's a little hard to know what to do about all that. They have so much invested in that. Right. That paradigm, and you can see that with the major corporate mergers that are taking place uh, between Dow and Dupont, um, Monsanto and Bayer, yeah, and Syngenta and ChemChina. That you don't. So, hmm. well, well, I think we just need to be. Work- Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, this is something I've been wondering because, do you feel like the act of taking genes from different species or different varieties of the same species? is inherently a uh you know something that is against nature or do you feel like if we were an evolved species this is a tool that we could actually use responsibly i mean is the tool flawed and is it actually not a tool or is it just the way that it's being used i used to think it was just more inherently bad yet now as i learn more about it and meet molecular biologists and recognize there's a certain unstoppableness of it. Basically, we've been given a more powerful microscope. And to say we can't use it is akin to like when the telescope was invented of like, yeah, that's useful, but, you know, that's not natural. You know, you should just use the human eye. Right. So, you know, using molecular biology and marker-assisted breeding can really do some amazing things without crossing the species barrier. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, gene editing and some of the new CRISPR technology and stuff is more in alignment with that. But, you know, for all the arguments of the biotech industry that it could lead to, you know, uh, climate change, drought-resistant uh, seeds and, uh, you know, accelerating plant breeding to adapt to all the challenges. That's not what they're doing. These are all chemical companies and they're using it to sell their chemicals. And yeah. uh, um, so I don't think the technology is inherently bad. It's really difficult to separate the technology from the intellectual property um, yeah. arrangements that accompany it that really are, I think, inherently bad and are claiming nature as a novel invention with things like utility patents and things of this nature. So, right. It's, you know, again, a complicated argument, and I don't think we're going to come up with a solution by banning the crops because, you know, it was sort of, I think it was uh, Joanna Macy said the problem isn't nuclear uh, weapons, it's the mindset that created them in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we could outlaw nuclear weapons and there may still be things of that nature uh, occurring. So I think that's the bigger argument you know, occurring with human civilization right now. And, yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause with earth repair radio, I'm essentially looking for, uh, 
what are the pathways to actually large-scale restoration of our planet, restoration of the biosphere, the damaged ecosystems? How are we going to um, you know, feed large populations on the soils that we have? And I know that the you know, some of the big players in the world that affecting the most acres of land are these big, um, you know, corporations. And obviously their solutions are going to be what they've been practicing, um, splicing genes and everything. And so I'm just trying to figure out if, if this is actually something that can be done well. Like, what do you feel that inter, that, that any interspecies transfer of genes is, is inherently, um, you know, something that should not be done? Well, because I think it's impossible to divorce uh, gene splicing from the business model that it's been associated with, I would just have to, you know, from a precautionary principle, just give a blanket, no, that's not the right direction because we have never so far in human history used genetic engineering for a purely humanitarian ecological purposes. There's always profit and, uh, you know, the continuing centralization and consolidation of power that's associated with it. Um, and, you know, they tout the golden rice as this uh, effort to, you know, cure blindness in Africa and Asia. But I think you need to eat like, you know, a few kilograms of it to get the equivalent of what a carrot or a sweet potato would give you. So it's basically a, a failure the one thing they say is humanitarian doesn't actually work. Hmm. Um, but I do think, and this is something that I've been enlightened to in more recent years as I actually meet molecular biologists and discover that you can do what's called marker-assisted breeding. So basically you can use molecular biology to look deeper into the genetics of an organism and understand which genes code for which things. And then you still go back to sexual reproduction for your plant breeding, but you can accelerate the the adaptation. So it's sort of more like, uh, let's say you have a disease issue in a certain crop. It's useful to have a laboratory or people that have a laboratory to help you identify what pathogen is occurring and what traits in the plant, like uh, whether it's waxiness on the leaves or more upright foliage or you know, just naturally occurring things that we can breed for actually confer resistance to enable our food plants, food, you know, really fiber and medicine to evolve to climate change. Because I firmly believe that in our lifetime, we will see climate change move so rapidly that agricultural will most likely become impossible in really important areas where it has been foundational to the stability of civilizations. Yeah. And no one or very few people are really thinking about this or doing anything proactively to address it. And that's what I see our work with seeds here is one way that we can fine tune crops. You know, if we're always saving seed from plants, they're the ones that make the most seeds are the ones that did the best in the current climate conditions. And we don't really use row covers or we don't spray anything. Uh, we don't use, you know, that input substitution model of organic farming with all the, you know, chicken manure and fish pellets and all that. We have, we maintain animals and do rotation. So we're evolving seeds, evolve to a low input type of agriculture. And what I believe what we need to see is also people that are working with our horticultural crops, you know, berries and tree fruits and nuts doing actual uh, sexual reproduction, not just grafting yeah. and cutting, which is yeah. clonal, which doesn't allow the organism to evolve. Yeah. And the same with our animals. Like who's breeding the awesome organ permaculture chicken right. that can lay eggs without a huge grain input hmm. or artificial lights? And the time, you know, there's a saying, uh, I think it was John Maxwell, who's like a business uh, coach. He says it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Yeah. And, I've been aware with agriculture because it's you're, you're limited by seasonality. It takes about 10 years to figure something out, you know, how to really grow something or in about 20 years to really master it and begin to have an idea where you can like do plant breeding and really work on stuff. Yeah. 
So we need to be, and I know from reading about climate change that some of the, the climate that we're experiencing now is the result of the human civilization that was present in the 60s and the 70s. So in 40, 50 years, the climate that we're experiencing now will be the result of what we're you know, doing right now. Right. And that, that's just really hard to wrap our mind around. Yeah. And it's going to, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to believe that all the science and all the findings are wrong. And that, you know, desertification in sub-Saharan Africa and the collapse of the monsoons all across Asia are just a fluke. You know, we're, yeah. we need to kind of pull out all the stops. And, you know, back to your initial query, um, molecular biology might be a really important tool that we have. And we can use that without doing genetic engineering and intellectual property restrictive rules and utility patents and i think that's where we need to divorce uh just a blanket opposition to it and you know our friend dr alan capular in talking with him um who's also known as mushroom who uh, lives right down the street for me (laughs) yeah his lymphoma cancer was addressed through a molecular biology uh, approach um you know so it's also it can save lives and yeah. another way, so I think we, you know, it, imagine if we had the internet back when like penicillin was first being released, and you know, and yeah. all the opposition on like maybe religious grounds or something huh. like that. Huh. Um, so, yeah, yeah, these yeah, are that's, not easy questions. Yeah, it's really interesting. Would you would you want to describe a little bit? <clears throat> um, how are you planning? for this future, like in your lifestyle? I and mean, if you can talk about your farm, your community, or, you know, you're talking about this, this future of destabilization of the climate, you know, what, what are you doing to put forth a, a vision of a, a different future? Well, um, I think and this is going to be kind of an odd answer. I've had a major aha moment around the seemingly boring uh, concept of middle management. Um, I'm going into year four with three employees here on the farm and um, and then also multi-year relationships with a couple of others. And so they're really learning our system mm-hmm. so that I don't have to do it, everything. And, and then it's also I'm trying to empower them to apply their own creativity so that, you know, my imagination is not the limitation of the system. And I'm seeing how it's sort of getting a flywheel effect going for the farm. Cause I've thought about it, you know, like we're all going to get old and die. Mm-hmm. And as we get older, um, maybe we have more health stuff come up or you, you break an arm or something. And you know, the, where my farm was 10 years ago, uh, if I broke my arm, things would grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. And now that's not the case. Um, so I'm seeing, you know, that a, a genuine sustainable model, if we want to use that term, is multi-generational. So mm-hmm. how are we uh, doing things like one of the projects we're embarking on is creating a operations manual for the farm, you know, a binder that has all of the utilities mapped out underground, um, uh, detailed instructions of our whole water system and how it all works, uh, all the electrical systems, um, the phone numbers and contact info for all the neighbors should something go wrong or, you know, all those kind of things that let's say I wasn't here that it could still function. So, and then, you know, I'm looking at, well, what can I do with that extra time that I have now? And I'm taking another um, uh, pause to initiate a new educational program that we're starting here on the farm this spring, later this spring in May. Uh, my partner and I, we were calling it the Lifestream Folk School. Hmm. And really, this is in response to seeing, you know, we've been doing internships for 19 years now. And it used to be that the young people, you know, that nowadays we might call the millennials, mm-hmm. were interested in starting a farm. So you go intern on a farm for a season or two, and then you scrape together some money, and you, you know, get a small piece of land, and you start working on it. Well, now, with land prices and the cost of everything, and and I think also the internet and the barrage of negative information that is bombarding people. Yeah, um, I'm seeing that I don't see that so much anymore. Um, the young people they w- maybe want to have a homestead and do something, but not so much commercial farming where you're actually earning a living farming. So 
that's where I'm, you know, hiring the people that show promise and in, in keeping them on our crew as much as I can and working with developing a team to really uh, steward this project, this piece of land. And then we'll have three six-week-long sessions where for four days a week, half of the day is hands-on learning of some skill that we have identified as crucial to knowing how to be a human being. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at four categories, food, clothing, shelter, and culture. Like that's, that's what it takes to have civilization and humanity that can thrive. Mm. So each of those four days will showcase one skill. So basket making, uh, learning how to make a drop spindle and working with wool, uh, working with leather, um, and things like learning some folk dances and learning mm -hmm. some uh, songs that you can sing, you know, traditional folk songs. So we're bringing in other teachers to showcase some of those. Mm -hmm. um, we're also starting each program with an overnight backpacking trip and ending with a two-night backpacking trip. Mm. So natural history and uh, understanding your bioregion is a key part of it. And I, my main goal within this isn't so much the teaching of those skills, while they may be valuable, but I think there is a deeper empowerment mm -hmm. in connecting with people who have a purpose and a passion and them as mentors, and then each mentor represents a whole kind of constellation of networks and relationships. So, I, you know, just to, I just see we somehow need to, you know, like the law of thermodynamic states, every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So for all the negativity that we see in the world and all the bad news, like what are we doing to engender just a, a wellspring of hope and optimism and confidence and capability that yeah. we can handle it. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I see we're kind of aiming this really at a younger crowd, but we'll see who shows up right. than our typical interns and really thinking of the 18 to 24 year old set. Yeah. How do, how, how do you tell that millennial person that learning how to make a willow basket or uh, spin yarn on a drop spindle has some importance to them and relevance in this modern society? That's a good question. Um, I think one of it is, you know, sometimes the way through it, uh, you know, the way forward is kind of through it all. Mm -hmm. And I've been having to kind of educate myself more on social media. And I look at the young people. I have a teenage son who's 14, you know, and Snapchat and Instagram, all this stuff, they're yeah. all about it. So if you want to reach them, you have to somehow turn into sound bites. So as luck would have it, there's a, a young man who interned with us last season who has a lot of experience doing video video editing. So we're going to really be working on a YouTube presence and just a stronger uh, telling of the story. And one of my friends who does documentaries and stuff said, hey, it, it shouldn't even be you as the one behind the camera. It should be these other young people mm -hmm. because your audience can listen to someone who's more like themselves. Like to a young person, I just seem like, you know, that I've been doing it forever. And, right. you know, I can throw around terms like I've been doing this 25 years, which may be more years than they've been alive. Yeah. They don't see themselves in me. So. I think that's part where I want to focus my activism and, and solution-oriented efforts is uh, really empowering the youth. And I, I don't even clearly know what it looks like, but uh, you know, all I can do is what I know how to do. And, and then for my partner and I, we're looking at, because of just modern life, we've kind of gotten a little farther away from doing things like basket making and backpacking and uh, working with wool, even though we have sheep, just because you get busy running your life in a business so it, there's a selfish motivation that we like doing those things i know they're good for us they're yeah. beneficial for our mental health uh maybe right. others would agree and um you know so time will tell we'll see the how how that all goes forward but so far we're getting positive uh feedback yeah how, how do you feel how do you feel that earth-based skills are going to serve people going into the future you know, with, with your vision of where the world is going. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine you'd agree, but as I get older, I realize that um, the most valuable things in life aren't things, they're relationships. Hmm. And, you know, so having relationships with 
water, fire, earth, air, uh, one another, other beings, animals, um, invisible forces gives richness and meaning to life. And right now, I mean, take away most young person's phone for a day and see how they behave. Hmm. Um, they have this strong connection. Their relationship is, is facilitated through technology mm-hmm. rather than the, the direct experience. And we see this, too, with our religious traditions. Like, all spiritual teachings come from nature. You know, if you go back to the roots of Buddhism, really came from Taoism, and it was that introspective time spent in nature. And mm-hmm. we used to be a largely agrarian people globally, and, you know, including, you know, native people in the Northwest here had kind of a pseudo-agricultural relationship to the land base because they were tending things. And that defined a certain steady state of, of uh, you know, harmony with mm-hmm. the landscape. So most people had lots of time outside to think about things and and or just be quiet. And very few people have that anymore. And... You know, anything like spinning wool with a drop spindle, there's so many darn steps to the whole thing from the sheep to, you know, shearing it to carting it to picking it to spinning it to plying it to mm-hmm. then making something with all that. And it's like a meditation. And I just know for myself that these things, when I'm getting a little spun or off, all it takes is doing something like that. Or, you know, going for a walk along a creek and seeing what plants are occurring and what's going on. That there's a recentering to that. And I, I just feel like we, as a people, especially in these technological areas, I, I don't really know how people function uh, in cities. I heard a UN report that in a matter of time, 80% of the global population is going to live in cities. Wow. And there was an interesting conversation <laughs> that occurred at the North American Permaculture Convergence it was a bit of a side conversation. There was a, a strong uh, urban influence with that that particular event, uh-huh. and a lot of discussion about greening the cities and rooftop gardens and you know that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas there was a man who I was talking with who was a Vietnam vet and a bit older than myself, and he said, "I think we need to be getting real with the." There's a projection right now that by 2030 we're going to see 10 foot sea level rise. Hmm. That's that's in 13 years. Whoa. So instead of talking about how to fix Miami, maybe we need to be looking at how do we relocate or create opportunities, housing, jobs, food production for all the people that will be displaced. Right. Or we'll just be subjected to the uh, you know climate disaster FEMA camp scenario that I'm sure is being, you know, drafted in some war rooms right now. Right. Um well, re- refugee, refugee, the refugee crisis is worldwide, and you know, right now. Well, some of the previous podcast episodes, the first one with Ramis Kent, who does work in Somalia and Tunisia and Yemen, and he really broke down how land degradation in a lot of these really kind of dry, marginal climates is is fueling. Uh, people having to flee their homes and become refugees, which adds fire to any potential political instability. And so what you're talking about right now is, is happening in a lot of places already. And, you know, huge, massive refugee camps and people, um, you know, crossing borders at risk to their lives, you know, in order to get to some place where there's not a war or there's uh, food. Yeah, so, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I, I just read something that there's 40% more refugees right now than there was 10 years ago. Wow. So, you know, and there's, I think it was a, a quarter of a billion people right now are refugees wow. on the planet. Yeah. yeah. That's a pretty considerable number. Uh, and I think we're only going to see that go up more. There was recently a, a, a kind of a series show that somebody suggested I watch, and it's uh, basically a dystopian uh, scenario called uh, Incorporated where it's the year 2073 and climate change has spiraled out of control. And now there's two corporations that do biotech that basically run the whole world. Wow. And, you know, if things keep moving, that's a plausible scenario. And I think, you know, like Bucky Fuller said, Buckminster Fuller, yeah. the best way to predict the future is to design it. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, 
permaculture designers or people that claim that have not been thinking broadly enough mm. and really need to begin looking at like well what does aerial reseeding of you know desertified land with mycorrhizal encrusted seed balls yeah. with maybe biodynamic preparations and a whole mixture of seeds so you know i've been thinking about this for a while that we are going to have to employ uh, you know, a, a huge effort to truly address some of the, the challenges that we face right now. So, you know, in permaculture, we say the problem is the solution. Well, right now we put so much money into our military here in this country. What if we somehow were using those resources, not necessarily the dollars, but the actual, the planes, the tanks, the soldiers, all those people to quickly retrain them in earth repair and, you know, reforestation earthworks for water catchment or drainage for that matter. Um, and I think all of a sudden we'd be able to chunk the problems that we face down into a manageable size yeah. because we do have a, you know, people is one of the resources that we have at our, um, you know, disposal. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and, and one thing is what, what the listeners here don't realize is that you have created this utter paradise where you live. I mean, I just want to just take a second and describe Don's farm has this network of ponds and he can, you know, these ponds overflow one to the next and he can zigzag giant flows of water down through terraces of orchards and he's got blocks of crops along with animals rotating and a creek running through and these natural buildings with solar panels and it's like like your your place when when I found your farm and toured it for the first time I was like wow this is it it really embodies some level of what you might think of as the permaculture dream right it's just like living on this sweet highly um highly in, in intensely uh cultivated and very planned yet very wild and beautiful place and um how can other how, how do you feel like other people can get to where you've gotten to in your life i mean i know you have the lifeways folk school and a lot of that might be about just basic connection to nature and and you've talked about the difficulties of people being able to obtain land i wonder if you have some more advice for people of how they can get from wherever they are um to the kind of paradise that you've created because you're really an example of someone who's actually done that you know i had the same like we're about the same age and i had the same vision like when i go to your place i'm like this is what i dreamed of when i was you know 18 19 20 and so mm -hmm. yeah well, I think I've been, I'm, I'm quite a kind of a, a, a armchair scientist, if you will. And if we look at the world from a quantum physics perspective, and we're constantly discovering things that just boggle the mind, you know, you just whether it's neutron stars or the idea of infinity or black holes, whatever you want to dream up, it, it exists somewhere out there in the universe. So the, from a quantum perspective, the word can't does not exist in our known universe. Hmm. So, and, and I, my whole life, that's always, I've had that kind of optimism. And one of the things I am hoping to facilitate more and more is just sharing that enthusiasm and inspiration and such that it's almost like, you know, hooking up the battery cables, uh, you know, and jumpstarting other people's just drive and passion. Because in order to really make anything like that happen, it takes where it doesn't feel like work. You're just, you're, you're so into it, even if it's difficult, that you just keep moving forward and you keep applying that effort. And that's what it takes to achieve our dreams, really. They don't just happen overnight. You know, and when the little sayings I learned from an elder is, uh, you know, when you pray or you have a dream or you're, you're hoping or wishing for something, that the creator will meet you halfway. Hmm. It's not just going to fall into your lap. You have to do half the work. So, you know, that's what I, my hope really is, is, you know, with the people I work with here, just the different, you know, opportunities I get to share with others is how to share that passion. Because if you really believe in something and have that faith and then you'll sort of, you'll pull it towards you. And that's that's another saying that I kind of think about oftentimes is that body follows vision. So if you have a clear vision, um, those those forces are quite strong. And the, the gross matter of what we see in the physical world um, 
it, it's kind of just like a puppet and it just follows whatever impulse is moving it along. And you look at things like gravity, nobody can see gravity, yet it, it rules everything. Hmm. And we want to define the world by what we see. And yet that represents a, a micro a fraction. We can't even see most of the visible spectrum of light. And that's hmm. what's driving all growth on the planet. Yeah. Um, so I, like I just learned a thing recently that our eyes actually have infrared receptors. This isn't like a new age thing. This is, this is actual science. Uh-huh. Um, and we actually consume infrared light. It's part of what drives metabolic processes. And you know, so when we think about that, that body follows vision. So if you can already see it done, then all you have to do is go through the steps uh, to achieve it. And it's cool. I've been studying a lot of like entrepreneurial dynamics because I run a seed company and I need to be in the business world in a way. Yeah. And there's a saying that it says, a vision written down becomes a goal. Hmm. A goal listed into steps becomes a plan. The steps carried out becomes reality. Nice. You know, that sounds so simple. Right. You know, if, if people could just do that for different parts of their life. But I think sometimes we have the vision and then we, we, we think about the steps and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that part. But right. if you really believe in the vision, you recognize like, oh, part, one of the steps is I have to do this part or I, I don't proceed. And, um, you know, it's just like, oh, well, I have to climb over that mountain to get to the other side. And that's just kind of how life is. Now, is is so, your life now what you envision? 20 years ago or 25 years ago? Is this what oh, you were going for? <laughs> well, you know, I, I never knew I'd have to spend so much time like working with a computer running a business. But now as I'm you know, getting to other levels of scale where I can hire somebody to do that part, mm-hmm. uh, it, I'm beginning to see how I'm getting to choose to do the parts I really like doing. So, you know, long ago when I was younger, and uh, friends and I, we talked about living on a community piece of land someday together. We were talking about what part would you want to do. And this was when I was new into biodynamics. I was like, I just want to make all the compost and do such a good job making the compost that everybody appreciates that so much that they do all the other parts because my contribution is so valuable. And it's interesting. We're, we're talking about getting some milk cows here. Uh, and, and beginning to go in that direction. And the land is finally at the point where I think we can sustain that and our, our lifestyle and everything, because that's a commitment, you know, milking and all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing how it's moving in that direction. It might be another 10, 20 years before I can just simply make compost and other people uh-huh. do the rest of it. But, you know, I, 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 so I'd answer yes. It's about where I thought but you know nobody really revealed to me how difficult it is being a business owner and a, a, a parent in these times and uh, and trying to hold morals and values so yeah uh, well, yeah well i know that you just from from your writings and the things that you put out there on the media i know that you keep a really positive vision um of the future you know by intention you've mentioned that a little bit you know what 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 can people hold on to right now in these times of change and we've talked about a lot of the issues we talked about how um media devices have really separated people a lot from living in the three-dimensional space we talked about the pressures of well with your seeds the pressures of of corporatism and we've talked about um you know uh, instability of climate you know what what is it that people at this point can can hold on to 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 get them through this and into the good reality? Well, that's a good, good question. One I think I ask myself, you know, probably every day. But I also repeat this little, it's a segment of something from Lao Tzu, is what you do is who you are. Hmm. And it sounds so simple, but there's a lot of people who want to be something, but they don't do that. So if you want to be kind and be perceived as kind, you have to do acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really simple. And I think it's so easy to get caught up. We were, we were listening to uh, a discussion by a, an anthroposophical uh, teacher, you know, kind of in that Steiner world, about leadership. And what was interesting is uh, I was listening to a, another podcast that was the two women that started Black Lives Matter. And they mentioned the same exact thing 
that we need more leaders in this time to really lead us in the right direction. Yet leaders, because we live in the celebrity culture, are also like we love our celebrities, but then we hate them mm-hmm. when they do something we don't like. So to be a leader means that all of a sudden you become a celebrity and then you are scrutinized by these standards that you're perfect and you know all the, the right things. And when you don't, then you get the, you know, the, the repercussions of that. So, you know, this idea of leadership, I think decentralizing leadership, and we just need a lot more people leading in the direction that they're passionate about. And it kind of goes back to what I said before, if you have a clear vision for your life, then you are the leader of your life. You're not following somebody else's idea or um, what somebody else told you to do. You're, you're your own leader. And then that creates a certain, you know, gravitational field that I think begins to um, encourage others to be that for themselves. And if some of these, you know, things in our world, water, soil, air, are commonalities, we will, in essence, become leaders for those things. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we can see the water is life movement um, really struck a chord with people. And, you know, so I... Again, it kind of comes back to how do we empower people to have the sense of self-esteem, to have the, the positive outlook, to actually have a vision. You know, because I can see that vision of the FEMA, you know, climate disaster camps. I can see that, but I can also see one 50 years in the future that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we can't lose sight of that. And that's, I think one thing, maybe we need to teach more creative writing or something. Hmm. Um, and I, I see a lot of the young people are my kids uh, reading these dystopian novels. And there seems to be this whole kind of fascination with that because they see it, they see yeah. where things are headed yeah. on a certain level. And how do we have more, you know, fifth sacred things more like always coming home by Ursula Le Guin or, uh, ecotopia kind of this, uh, a, a, a vision for not just humanity, but the all the species on this planet hmm. that are that direction. And I, you know, I'm really hoping that maybe somewhere that's off my radar, this is actually happening way more than I'm aware of. Uh, of a lot of people that are focusing their awareness and intention on this this kind of reality, and then conducting their lives such that it's moving that way. And that's, you know, to kind of bring this all home, I realized when you have a clear vision and then you get to a crossroads in your life, should I go this way or that way? All we have to do is think, will this direction going this way lead to that vision? If it doesn't, then don't go that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think a lot of us were just in that instant gratification thing where we just, we're not thinking about where we're going to wind up when we do these things. And kind of back to where you were saying before, you know, are you, is the life you're living now at, similar to what you set out? And, and in many ways it is, you know, I, mm-hmm. I look outside and there's all, all these things growing that make flowers and fruit and nuts and animals around and people that I like interacting with constantly stopping by. And, you know, and, and then when I get uh, paid, so to speak, for my job, it's checks in the mail from selling seeds. Mm-hmm. And then I think about it when I deposit it in the bank, I'm like, this is so cool. <laughs> I turned seeds into my life. Right. And it pays for all the other things I need to do. And then it pays other people. And that that's just really cool. You know, if we could just take the weird money interest part out of the whole deal, but that's where we're at. So yeah. Yeah, I think align with living things and everything will be okay. Yeah, align with living things and everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. suddenly some, some tattoos are going to pop up now. That one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, so that's so awesome, Don. I really appreciate hearing all that. It just makes makes me feel good. Just um, you know, I, I sinking into the the vision of fifty years from now. That's actually. Uh, wholesome and, and looks a lot like your farm. And if the world can look a lot more like seven seeds farm in 50 years, then I think we're going to be in a pretty good place. Um, how can people find out more about your work and what you do and your seed company? Yeah. Well, we have two websites. One is more the business end of things, uh, which is siskiuseeds.com. And that's spelled S I S K I Y O U seeds. 
and that's you know how you can access seeds and we're getting more into plants uh, and we're starting to put some plants on there too and then our work with education and you know everything else is the seven seeds farm site so that's all spelled out s-e-v-e-n seeds farm.com so the live stream folk school is on there we also have the seed academy coming up in early may which is a five-day intensive in growing seeds but also the reproductive biology of plants it's a you know we dive deep into botany and all that kind of stuff so those are our two main educational offerings and people can learn more about them in that way um and that's pretty much it great um, you know, it's funny that after I do these interviews, I try to think of what the podcast is going to be called, like what was the major theme of the talk. And we've just covered so much ground in so many different directions here that uh, that's going to be really challenging. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. But hey, Don, thank you so much. That was really awesome to hear all about what you're doing and hear all your stories and hear all the different struggles. And um, I just really appreciate you coming on and spending some time talking to me. Right on. You're welcome. Thank you for the chance. All right. Well, have a great day, Don. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Andy. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millicent, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.